Hey everybody! Welcome to Literary Disco. Is this how it goes, Julia? So far, so good. Okay, welcome to Literary Disco, everybody. I'm Todd. I'm Julia. And she's Julia. And normally, we are joined by actor, writer, camper, which we'll get to in a moment, writer strong, um, as part of the show Literary Disco, which by this point, usually an episode has already been formally introduced, but we don't really remember what writer says at the beginning of an episode. He's not here, so... He's not here. So I do know this is episode 196. Okay, good. And uh, uh, she's uh, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. And your novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. And Ryder Strong, actor, director, camper Ryder Strong, is also usually on the show. And we are three old friends who love to read, write, talk about it, and sometimes... Uh, I think we agree. There's a part about it. We agree or we disagree. Huh. And then when when do Joey and the the girl who sings Smelly Cat when 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 are they on the show? They're not on it. It's just you and me. That's just friends. Well, anyway. Yeah. As Todd is alluding to in the most awkward way possible, it's just (laughs) us. It's just us. uh, But but this is a thing that has happened, Julia. Like almost every summer, mm-hmm. is you and I are forced to do like a summer reading episode because Ryder has fucked off into the woods. Yeah, I mean, this is a good opportunity to talk about what I assume is both of our favorite memory of Ryder when we were first friends, and Ryder just got it into his mind that he was going to build a biggest beach fire bonfire <laughs> known to man. <laughs> staggered around finding trees from god knows where creating a giant bonfire and i think that's when we really knew what we were getting into friendship wise well that that's true but julia have you not been looking at Ryder's instagram while he's been gone i have been actually um so you saw the bear the the bear (laughs) (laughs) so listeners here's the weird thing so Ryder has an instagram that he ignored for i'd say a decade and then all of a sudden, like in the last two months, he's begun posting things. And right now he is documenting in detail this this nationwide camping trip he's on. So if you and your family are in the highways and byways of America and you're stopping someplace and pitching a tent, you might run into TV's Rider Strong with his wife and child, um, Alex and Indy. And so, you know, the pictures are great and they're beautiful and they're hiking and they're doing stuff that Jews don't do, like, you know, shitting in the woods and stuff. And then, like, there's a legit, like, bear, an ursine, that is attacking their campsite. It was horrifying. Yeah. I mean, this is why... This is why you don't go to the woods, Todd. So, if any of our listeners happen to be new, which, uh, welcome to... (laughs) Podcast. <laughs> Rider, Welcome to episode 196. Ryder's definitely on the mountain man end of the spectrum. And let's just say Todd had a refillable Starbucks card before anyone else knew that was a thing. Those are the two ends. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's correct. And I'm, I'm in the middle, but I'm going camping next week, too. So, I mean... I've never encountered a bear on the trail, though. That, that, would, no. be, that would be a lot. Yeah, so listeners, if you go and you look on Instagram, just look up Ryder's name, and he's got a, I think he's got a verified account, so you'll know it's him. But there's an actual movie, and when Ryder's back, we will for sure 
talk about this. There's an actual movie of like a like a big ass legit bear eating their stuff. And then there's some photos afterwards of like, you know, books that the bear had ripped up and things like that. So here's here's the other legitimate difference between Ryder and me. Like if that had happened to me, Julia, like that's it. That we're done camping. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in a car. I'm coming home. We're staying in a Radisson somewhere. I'm not. I'm not like. Oh yeah, a bear showed up. No, that's that's it. I'm fucking done. I am fucking done. Well. So we don't. We're not big campers. But anymore. I do. Not too too early pivot to us actually talking about something relevant. <laughs> but I. I think I am excited because when Ryder goes away, it is our chance to talk about the absolute trash that you and I willingly read that Ryder right. would not read or would at least tell us what's wrong with America for it being published. <laughs> he does have some opinions on what's wrong with America by virtue of things that were written 50 to 60 years ago. So we have some we have an angle for today yeah. um and we also have you've contributed something else strange for us to discuss so yeah so how should we get into it well we've we're gonna um the first thing is we're gonna talk about some stuff for for the anti-camping which is <clears throat> the sitting by the pool we've got some books for you to read while you are sitting by the pool some classics some new stuff uh so we'll get to that in just a sec um but today was a weird day because all of a sudden on Twitter, a thing blew up that we had talked about a couple years ago, which was that short story cat person. Do you remember that, Julia? Of course I do. It was like this viral sensation. It was a short story that was in The New Yorker, um, and it was right at the beginning of the of the explosion of Me Too. And we actually did an episode, episode 123, um, about some short stories that clearly had influenced Cat Person. Um, and we had, we talked about a short story called Stitches by Antonia Nelson and A Real Doll by A.M. Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this episode, if you go and look in the archives uh, on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, is, is, is still right there. Um, but so this short story, it was this big viral uh, event, and then it sort of disappeared. Um, and then the author's book came out um, a year or so ago. It was not a, a huge seller, um, but Cat Person was again back in the news because a movie was greenlit based on it, um, starring one of the uh, actors in um, Secession, um, which is a show that I've seen two episodes of. Um, so anyway, so it's been floating around again in the in the zeitgeist. But today it blew up again because there was an essay in Slate, and we'll put a link up to this on the Facebook and Twitter, by a woman who said. I, like, the person in Cat Person is me. I, you know, I'd always suspected that the story was based on me. I reached out to the writer and I found out that it was true. And it is a bananas essay. <laughs> um, but so here's the thing. Like, if, if you know writers, invariably you are going to end up in their work, whether you like it or not. Like, you just show up. And sometimes it's in a simple way, like, you know, someone will say something to me and I'll be like, hey, just, just so you know, I'm, I'm taking that line. Like, that that belongs to me now. Or I'll say, hey, you've got two weeks to use that if, there, if it's another writer. And if you don't use it in two weeks, it belongs to me. Um, and these are conversations that happen all the time. 
But, you know, I, I have seen myself in other people's fiction, and I have for sure seen myself in nonfiction. I mean, there are, um, there are two <laughs> memoirs out this year that I read where I show up in them, uh, and both times not as tall as I think I am, mm. frankly. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what happens when your friends are writers, you know, and, you're, and you play an active role in their lives. You, you show up sometimes. Um, and, of course, all of us have based characters... And situations on people that we know. I mean, you do that for sure, uh, Julia, in your nonfiction. You're writing about your own life. Yeah. I mean, you fictionalize yourself. You fictional, I mean, not fictionalize, but you interpret yourself as a character. Right. Um, And you interpret, I mean, I think with nonfiction in particular, it's super interesting because when you're really in it as a nonfiction writer, you're just seeing the world through that essayistic lens and you're making meaning that is creative you know at all times even while you're like experiencing real life um so yeah everybody everybody can get sucked into the cyclone of that process and you know in my own fiction you know i've never i'm not a gangster you know (laughs) um i've never killed anybody but when we you know we've talked about this before periodically there will be someone who walks into a story of mine and astute readers will be like, oh, it's, it's so lovely to see your wife. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's a character in um, The Low Desert, a, a wife character, who is so very obviously my wife, Wendy, that anyone who's ever met her before, it's like, oh, I, hadn't, I hadn't, didn't get a chance to see her. That was so nice to encounter <laughs> Wendy for, you know, four pages or whatever. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've fictionalized my mom um, in, mm-hmm. in my fiction before, um, but always in stories that are not really about my real life. They just, you know, they're, in a way, the people that are in my life become archetypes in my fiction. So in this case, though, it was a little weird. So this, the thing that hinges Cat Person as a short story, the thing that made it so salacious was this violent, awful sex that these two characters have. And then this texting relationship that is horrible. Mm -hmm. And then this conclusion that ends with this man walking up to this woman in a bar and calling her a whore for essentially ghosting him. Like that was the stuff that really, you know, churned the internet up was all this salacious stuff. But the the woman who wrote the essay in Slate, and um, we should pull up her name instead of just calling her The Woman. Uh, as though very she good, is very good. in a, a 12th century novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the author... Who Kristen is, Rupinian. That's the author of Cat yep. Person, Kristen Rupinian. Um, and then the author of the piece in Slate is Alexis Nowicki. Um, essentially, Alexis Nowicki and Kristen Rupinian had a shared boyfriend slash friend um, at different points in their lives. And this person subsequently died. Um, and Alexis Nowicki recognized this man um, from the details of their relationship, which was that he was older. He was 33 and she was a sophomore in college. And in the short story, Cat Person, um, she's, you know, Kristen Rapinian gives this woman, Margot, the same job and characteristics as the, as the real woman. So all this stuff is, ends up being true. Um, but it's the, it's like the mundane stuff that's true, not the salacious stuff, but the essay 
you know, she, she confronts the author. It's really kind of troubling and strange. What'd you make of it, Julia? I think this is just so bizarre because, I mean, I, I understand why she wrote it and why Slate published it. You know, like I see why this piece exists because it's fascinating that she could recognize herself in a viral New Yorker story. Mm -hmm. Um and that I mean that alone is amazing it was that weird, it was yeah. that <laughs> mainstream. Um but I feel like this is a style of essay that is almost outdated at this point of like it happened to me. I was in a viral New Yorker story when really what's very jarring about that is this guy died and the essay right. is about like her personal like the title, which I'm sure she did not write, is right. Cat Person and Me. But there's a dead guy. Like it's right. about a dead guy. Both the original short story and like we're talking about a man's life here. Right. Um, so that I found very jarring. The the this like super long meditation on her relationship with him and you know, the fact that it was written into a short story. I just don't feel like that's front page news. Um, but I do think for a lot of people, it is interesting to see how a life can become fictionalized almost by accident. Um, mm. You know, she never met this writer. She just right. knew a guy who knew a writer. Um, and he didn't tell her that he knew the author. Yeah, right. So that's the important thing. So um, Nowicki reached out to this man that they had in common, and he didn't tell her that that he knew her. It wasn't until years later, until after this man's death, that, that she found out that they knew one another. Um, which is strange. But there's this part at the end of the essay that I wanted to talk about. Okay. She says, What's difficult about having your relationship rewritten and memorialized in the most viral short story of all time, and we can get to that, <laughs> is, is the <laughs> sensation that millions of people now know that relationship as described by a stranger. Meanwhile, I'm alone with my memories of what really happened. Just like any death leaves you burdened with the responsibility of holding on to the parts of a person that only you knew. Mm. Okay. It's true. It's yeah. true, but she's also and affecting her own issue that she's having. She's like, this thing happened where I've lost a piece of myself. Oh, you should, I, here's a, Here's an essay in Slate all about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's like she she's both horrified by having this part of her life end up fictionalized, and she wants you to know that it was her. Yes. It's exactly. A, it's a strange it's a strange sort of um turn. Um because we don't need like you could you could hold that memory of this man and who he was without ever telling us that any part of it is true. Um, it, it's a, I mean, this is the thing, though. This is the strange compulsion we have as a society, right? Like, we want to both shock you and tell you that, oh, my God, this part of the story is true. We want you to empathize that something was taken from us, and we want to be a part of the story. Yes, exactly. Like, if I were her, would I tell this at every party I'd ever yes. go to for the rest of my life? 100%. 100%. Would it be part of my two truths and a lie at any icebreaker? 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I think it is... I think there's a question here that she doesn't really answer or acknowledge, which is, can this fiction writer get at something true um, by borrowing the extremely bare bones details, you know, that she borrowed, you know, like, is, is this short story unworthy of being published or was it wrong to do this? Um, because it was based on these real people. And I think, no, like it was still a great story. Yeah. It's still, well, well, okay. Well, it was still still a story. (laughs) Still a story. But it, the things that happened to her and, and what made it into the story are so mundane as to be, um, normalized anyway. Older man dates a younger woman. They have a fucked up relationship. Like that's why that's why when we did the episode two years ago or however long ago it was, we said, "Hey, look, this story that has taken the world by storm. This is not the first time the story has been written. Mm-hmm. You know, the story Stitches by Antonia Nelson that we talked about, or essentially any short story that Elizabeth Crane wrote in her book When the Messenger Is Hot is the same short story, or any Mary Gateskill story that has ever existed. Um, it's." The salacious parts of all those writers that changes that narrative. It's the it's the turning of the normal into the abnormal that makes them interesting stories. That's what made Cat Person interesting. Mm-hmm. That's what made it so much of its time. Um, it's just it, it's just such a strange thing. And I was talking about it on my Facebook page, where you know the majority of the people on my Facebook page are authors, and you know half of them were like, "Oh, she's trying to cash in." You know, she wants a piece of that movie deal. She's going to sue for life rights or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Which I don't think that seems to be what she wants. Yeah, but maybe so she either. wants, you know, some secondary fame from it. Um, but also it's like the the solicitation of the, uh, of the author and getting the author to apologize for it when all fiction is taken from people. Like from yourself or from those around you or from living that's what that's what we do is we 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 make fiction that hopefully has some sort of empathetic appeal because it feels like it's about real people because we're inspired by real people like that, that that's what literature is that's what art is yeah but by the same token like when i hear um someone say like oh you know that dan fogelberg song old lang syne where he meets the woman in the grocery store on christmas eve that's true and that i was the girl i eat that shit up i'm all about it like, yeah what? because we want to know that it's really true we want to know that our sense of this story or song piece of art like that it feeling authentic is right, right. you know it validates the authenticity in a way but it's funny, I don't know, it's... All right, so is Cat Person a story about a 33-year-old who dates a young woman who works in a movie theater? No, that's that's the yeah. you know situation, but it's not what it's right. about. It's about sexual assault and the creepy ways that men trap and put down women verbally. And so, even though it's so strange, the same things happened, huge air quotes happening, listeners... Right. You know, these stories aren't the same. They're not about the same thing. They're not really right. in the same realm of reality. Um, yeah. Even though the fictionalized version feels very authentic. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, anytime I, I go anywhere, anytime I'm interviewed, someone will say, well, like, what part of this is true? Well, no part mm-hmm. of it is true because I'm not a fake hitman rabbi or <laughs> I, I didn't just, you know, cut up a body in the trunk of my car and now I'm driving away with a clown. Like, none of that happened. But there is a clown who walks around Palm Springs and I see him in bars. So, you know, I'm imagining his life. And and maybe in Rupinian's case, um, if I've, I think I just mispronounced her name, in, in any case, the author of Cat Person, um, you know, she took these people who she knew, this one person she knew, and she imagined him as a as a worse version of himself. Yeah. I, like, that's what... That's what art does, you know? It, it creates worst-case scenarios and, and then tries to untangle them for you. It's, I don't know. The, do whole, think, the whole thing gives me heebie-jeebies. Do you think if when... To, to play for the other team for a second. If when he read this piece, you know, and if he recognized himself, which is part of this essay, you know, he asked her, like, am I a right. bad person? Um, right. You know, he's not really, he's not present anymore to give his side of the coin. So I think it would feel less strange for him to write. In fact, that would be fascinating is for someone to say, (laughs) I was villainized or I was made to represent all men when really I'm just one guy. You know, that's, that is very interesting. But we've read those, you know, like we've read those We've read those pieces where someone says, I was the unnamed person in this essay where I was a horrible rapist fucking asshole, and that woman's a liar. And that doesn't go well. You're right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, that, that, that does not go well at all. Um, but, you know, he, in the essay itself, it says that he had kept this old iPhone so that he could go back and, and look at old text messages between himself and the author to make sure, like, he had never done anything gross like that, and he never had. Um but, you know, then it begins to put fear in your mind. Like, did I do that? And I don't remember. You know, am I Tyler Durden? Do I have a do I have an asshole twin who calls women whores? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. It, I, I feel like, I feel like, of course she has the right to tell her story. You know, she wants to tell the story that, that that's her right, um, as it is for all of us. But I, I think it it's, the the essay itself, it seems to be aiming at, saying like it's not your right to make up stuff based on other people's lives yeah you know but only in a really broad way yeah i mean could this author have changed two or three details that would have made sure they never recognized themselves she could have yeah you know she could have done that yeah well you know it it just it reminds me sort of of why we now in nonfiction do that thing, right? At the beginning of a book or an essay where we say people and names have been changed or folks have been combined or what or whatever, or they're based on a character. Because no one who's been portrayed as an asshole comes out and says, yeah, that was me. Yeah. <coughs> I was the asshole. <laughs> That's a true story. Um, I think you're willing to come forward if you appear as the as the good guy. And then there's always those stories of, you know, like the ex-boyfriend of Elizabeth Gilbert or whatever suing her or, you know, all this sort of crazy shit that happens and, and never ends up looking good for anybody involved. No. Um, but that's more often in nonfiction than in fiction. Um, because yeah. fiction's fiction. 
fiction does give you that umbrella, you know, that defense. It is, it's that, then there's a lot to be said for saying like, this is clearly fiction. And even if it is about you, you can, you can protect your, yourself and your emotions by saying that. Right. Um, But this, this debate is as old as literature itself. (laughs) People in the Bible were like, let me tell you something. Jesus wasn't that great. Yeah, and before we stop talking about this, I do have to say, I think Shirley Jackson would have to say, have something to say about the most viral short story of all time. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of hyperbole in calling that the most viral short story of all time. What do you um, think is the most viral short story of all time? Well, I think virility um, has changed. Um, yeah. Because while it, this was an extraordinarily popular short story that existed on Twitter and people were reading it, I don't know how many people actually read it as much as they talked about the thing that was inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to say, like, it's not like cat person is more important in in terms of being widely read than the cask of Amontillado. You know what I mean? Um, it's not more viral than the Raven. It's not more viral than the Lottery. Um, you know, or even the things they carried. The you know, Dead the, by James Joyce. I'm Googling. The Dead. Yeah. Um, you know, it may have been a touchstone for conversation, but it, it hasn't changed literature. Not by a long shot. Um, but, you know, there, there are these things that become important for a day or two on the Internet, and then we forget about them, but they're still part of the larger cultural conversation. And, I, like, I was thinking about this woman... Uh, who admitted that she'd fallen in love with that tech bro guy or the farmer bro guy. And I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes. Martin <laughs> Screlly or whatever yeah, his name the, is. Yeah, Ugh. the journalist who had fallen oh, in love with him. That story was so weird. It was so weird, and it was so important to me for about 16 <laughs> hours, and then I can't, I don't even remember her name. Yeah. And, you know, everyone, everyone gets their chance in the crosshairs on the internet for a day, you know? Um, and this was a short story that it was emblematic of a larger issue of that time. Um, but I don't, I don't know in terms of the quality of the story. I don't think it stands the test of time. I just reread it. Um, it's a good short story. Um, but you know, like we said at the time, it's not better than everything Mary Gateskill has ever written. It's just right. It was just right on the the money yeah. time wise, and there's yeah. a lot to be said for that. Like, good for her. Good yeah. for her. Yeah, I mean, and she got the conversation going, and she also suffered from it. You know, she was getting bashed all over the internet. She had you know asshole men and you know incels and shit coming after her. I mean, no one wants that from a little short story that you write. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> we don't write short stories in hopes that we change a cultural conversation we write short stories and hope that the new yorker publishes it yeah exactly <laughs> and and then it does and then all of a sudden for her at least it became a cultural touchstone the majority of short stories published in the new yorker all they do is get you a really nice book deal with knopf afterwards they don't they don't get every 19 year old on twitter talking shit or praising you um but you know i i don't I, I still look at it as, as a piece of literature. Other people look at it as a piece of um, the zeitgeist. And I don't know if it hold I don't know if in ten years people will remember what this thing was. Yeah, and I think what's really fascinating to me is that her apology email 
the author's apology email to this essayist is in the essay. And she had to know that this email would become public, that there would be another another piece. So it's all sort of this tie. Like now, if if you get embroiled in one of these public events, you know, you know that everything you say is going to be part of the backlash to the backlash to the backlash. So I just can't even imagine what work of emotion and care writing that apology must have been um yeah and it's solid she did a great job (laughs) yeah i mean and both people clearly also um are hurting Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and that that's the thing you know maybe this is it maybe that's the thing that makes it feel skeevy to me is that both people are hurting both people clearly cared about this man who is now dead and neither of them knew he was dead you know, until long after it had happened. Um, and so by the time they're having this conversation, they're both also mourning this person that was at some point important to them in their lives. And it feels a little invasive to be reading about two people who are mourning at the death of a person that is also the centerpiece of a piece of fiction that is now the centerpiece of a piece of nonfiction that we are now discussing on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I do think, I I know we got to transition away from this, but there is this one piece in the middle of the essay, and I'm like, this is where this woman's lack of skill actually becomes really, really interesting. Like, she she hits on something that I think the essay should really be about, which is, um, we are all unreliable narrators, okay? Cliche, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, sometimes, to my own disappointment, I find myself inclined to trust Ruperian over myself. Had Charles actually been pathetic and exploitative, and I simply hadn't understood it because I, like Margot, was young and naive? The answer could be yes. You know, like, we're seeing her work out her own, like, she's learning from the story, possibly, or at least the story is making her question... Right. Something that is is really interesting and important. So, except that it's a piece of fiction. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, like Rupin could have made up everything, <laughs> and and then you try to ascribe the reality of your life based on someone's fictional interpretation of a secondhand story. Yeah, it's wow. a lot. Well, it's a lot to work out. I don't know if I if I I'm gonna have to think some more about this. I might have to host a panel discussion about this at my next MFA residency. <laughs> my students are talking about it too. I saw that they were talking about it on their on their Slack page today. Um because you know they're all writing about each other. But I mean, so here's the last thing. Like this is the other like this is the other thing. Is like when you're in a creative writing program, you like you see people working out their shit between each other a lot of times in the short stories. Oh, that's like, funny. Like, you see that shit. I mean, that's what all of those um, workshop novels are about. It's like half of them are about, like, this is the shitty person that I took a fiction workshop with. <laughs> or those essays that end up in Salon or Slate, for instance, where they're like, oh, I was in a class with Josh Ferris and he was a fucking dick to me. You're like, well, <laughs> he was in college. You know, like... <laughs> People are dicks. Um, There is some desire, though, to see into that reality of how fiction writers get to their stuff, right? It's all about where does the magic come from? Like, and here we actually see, like, oh, she cooked this recipe 
from some shit she she found. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> so there is, you know, from a process side of things, there is there is some interesting stuff in there. But it's not the first piece that will that will question these things, um, as you said. Um, it'll probably not be the last time we talk about it. Well, this has been a very intellectual discussion, and so <laughs> I think we need a hard pivot. Yes, pivot. <laughs> I don't want to do Friends references. This is. Pivot! Did you watch the Friends reunion though, Julia? I did watch it. Of course. Oh, we watched like we watched like ten times. Are you serious? I cried. Oh yeah, I loved it. Oh wow. Um, I mean, I like so quick Friends history on me. I I had seen Friends, who hadn't? But I moved to China when I was 22 and you could get illegal DVDs for a dollar a DVD. And my uh-huh. friends and I would just buy like hundreds of these DVDs, which I probably shouldn't admit, but I don't, I don't think Warner brothers is going to come after you. Um, so I watched, I bought all 10 seasons of friends for like $6. Um, <laughs> and I watched it all. <laughs> so, uh, it makes good sense. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I know it, I know Friends, and I love some of the characters, and but I, I recognize the problems it's had with aging. So, I I enjoyed the reunion, but more on, it, was, it wasn't like a deep connection. It was like, what am I going to put on in the background while I work out? Oh, no. Like, it was on, and Wendy and I got up at like 8 o'clock in the morning and watched it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like, it, we... It was on first thing in the morning we watched it. These are the things we can never talk about when Ryder's around. Yeah, because Ryder would mock me for my love of Friends. I love Friends. Okay. Like, that was that was my era. Look, look, also, my hair looks like fucking Ross's. Let's just be clear about this. So, Lisa Kudrow is the best person on Friends, and I will have no other discussion. Oh, she's great. Who's your favorite? And her mom, or her dad, is my sister's gynecologist. Okay. <laughs> I know that's weird. All right. Anyway, we got to I don't know how to get out of that one. <laughs> Looking for a transition. So, Todd, tell tell the fine people what we're talking about next. Well, OK, so here's the deal. Typically, we would now be talking with Ryder and he'd be like, OK, um, this is a book I read in 1979. I was in Columbia and this great professor who's been dead for 75 years and 1979, wasn't he like one or two years old? Just go with it, Julie. Just go with it. <laughs> and, you know, he taught us that in the summertime, like, that's the time to really improve yourself. And so every summer I read, uh, and then he'd say some name, like in French, and you and I would just be like, yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. Heard of that? <laughs> yeah, I, I love Gizba. Um, but in fact, the truth is, Julie and I have very um, basic taste yeah and um, we like to lounge we like to lounge and that means like when i'm by the pool or at the beach i don't read high art like there's there are videos and photos right now of Ryder on his vacation camping where he is literally reading the book that julie and i have not yet started to read for the show which i is was gonna East say speak for yourself but that's <laughs> a cold hard fact yeah, we're 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 gonna read East of Eden at some point, and it's it's a very long book, and Ryder is already like you can see him flipping pages on his camping trip. Yeah, I'm, I'll I'll start reading it very very soon. Um, 
so when I would go on vacation, like when I was a kid, I would always bring just absolute total trash with me to read by the pool. And there's a, a picture of me hanging just down the hall from where I am right now, where I'm sitting at this fishing camp where we used to go every year, Loon Lake, Washington. I look like I'm the fucking keyboard player in The Cure. I got crazy hair. I'm wearing a Bauhaus t-shirt. And I'm literally reading a 70s pulp novel um, <laughs> while doing all that. So I'm a big believer that when you're sitting out by the pool or sitting out by the uh, beach or wherever you go to, to burn your flesh um, during the summertime, that you read absolute shit. Like it's not, you know it's not going to be great but it moves fast and there's some violence or there's some sex, um, you know, something, something good. So I'm a big believer <laughs> that when you are by the pool or sunbathing or whatever, or doing, or drunk, that you read a book that's got like super sex and violence. It's mm -hmm. got a super dumb plot, like that there's nothing of value to it at all. Mm -hmm. I, that's what it should it should be valueless okay this is great i am i was gonna kick this off by asking what is your philosophy because we specifically said pool reads which to me right. now i'm more of a beach goer i love the pool i joined the pool this summer with my daughter and i'm like going back to my um jersey roots i would like spend all summer at the pool when i was a teenager um but I think the pool is like that's the absolute lowest level. I the think lowest, lower than. And you're gonna beach. you're gonna destroy the book too because it's gonna get pool water on it. Yeah, and it's like, what's going on with you at the pool? Okay, you're too hot. You are <laughs> constantly distracting yourself by jumping in the water or getting snacks. Uh, you know, there's gossiping going on at the pool. Like, it's much less of a serene, deep, intellectual environment than the beach to me. Right. This is really right. splitting it. But to me, like, I read, I'm sure I've said this before, I read Anna Karenina on the beach when I was 17. And that well, was like... you were like, 17. Yeah. But yeah. still, that that's passable. But I'm totally with you. The pool has to be... It's... The book is the equivalent of the airheads or the chips that you're consuming right. while you're reading it. It is the Fritos of literature. Yeah. Um, a Fritos on like a slushy. Like you're only consuming things that later will give you a headache. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to feel kind of bad about it. But yeah. you're also going to love it the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if, you, and if you lose a page, like if a page gets ripped out. Or you spill slushy on it. Right. Yes. Yeah, if the cover comes off, if the binding right. like melts off of your airport right. paperback, you're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's even better if you didn't actually buy the book, but like wherever you're staying, you go downstairs and it's just sitting there. Yes. That's perfect. Yes. Um, now, I was thinking about this too, and I think there's, for me, there's kind of a, there's an even, there's even more reasoning here because it is... A pool read is about fun, you know? Yes. And I think part of the fun for me is reading something either so violent or so sexual that there's this weird tension between you and this suburban pool environment, right? Like you're reading mm -hmm. something that you, if people knew what exactly the words you were reading, <laughs> it would be horrifying. Like some... some uh... Pedals in the wind type shit, you mean? <laughs> well, I'm going to add, because I was thinking about what I really do read um, on vacation. B 
beach, pool, camping, um, and airplanes and stuff. And I need to add a category that we have never talked about on the show because it would be too shameful to talk about this with Ryder here. But you're my safe space, Todd. And oh, that is that. self-help. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and I'm not talking like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But in my right. family, we all get into these. This is a family habit. Um, books about like productivity and habits <laughs> and like making your life better. Um, Are you fucking kidding me? And it is so hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. But that is a good pool read, too, because you're just like, oh, yeah, let me pick up this book about habits and i'm seven habits of successful people and that sort of thing um yeah but there's better ones now there's better ones i hope because they're wrapped they're wrapped in a nice little hot dog bun of um like actually being about like science oh um so i mean this is a whole category and i bet a lot of listeners have have read them the power of habit atomic habits getting things done. I mean, there's tons of them. And see, when I had a so real job great to read. before before I was a professional writer or before I was a professor when I had real jobs, I always had a manager who would be like, "Todd, I know you're a big reader. <laughs> I want you to read this." And it would be like, you know, 36 successful habits of marketing geniuses in America and be like, "Sure. Let's 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 go to lunch on Tuesday and talk about this." And I'd be like, "Oh, for fuck's sake." Or, like, there'd be the holiday party, and the manager would get everyone the same thing and be like, these are, this is, this book is very important to me. You'd open it up and be like some sort of management strategy book that he got everybody. It's like, signed. I met the guy. I met him at a retreat. Yeah, this is, okay, so I love that you're more upset and scandalized by the fact that I've read these books than, like, pornography, basically. Pornography, (laughs) at least, is something relatable. (laughs) um but i think yeah they're a lot of fun because they they add to this illusion that like your life can be under control and you're just one chapter away from having your act together having it all figured out yeah so that doesn't appeal to you at all well i used to read like sort of that strange sort of crossover realm of self-help and teaching you how to write books Oh, yes. Okay. You know, like Bird by Bird or Writing Down the Bones or even On Writing, the Stephen King book. Um, Or, you know, Lawrence Block's book on novel writing. But, you know, really, like, the the George Saunders book we read is kind of, it's, you know, it's how to write, but it's also, it's a self-help book. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, hey, you got picked last in kickball and you read a lot and you write stuff. You're not alone. (laughs) Well, I... So just, it's sort of a self-help. Yeah, and that is an interesting category. So I just started reading um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, and mm-hmm. I read, like, two chapters, and I agree with some, like, the core of her idea, which is, like, all people should enjoy creativity. <laughs> After, like, two chapters, I literally Googled, is Elizabeth Gilbert crazy? <laughs> because it's just so <laughs> absurd. Um but it's these books like they are so appealing. I don't know what it is. It's it's the Fritos thing. Um right. you know, you just they're telling you you will be a better person for reading this and I'm like, yeah, but let me see, give it a try. But see, this is the thing. It's like and we will get to the books that we're about to tell you about in just a sec here, listen, yeah. I promise. So I just read for instance, uh my friend and your friend Gina Frangello's book, 
blow your house down. And that is sort of a book about self-help feminism, but it's also a book about adultery and uh, agency and, and all this other stuff. And it didn't help me uh, reading the book. I didn't, it didn't fix me in any way, but it helped me understand uh, things that Gina had done and things that uh, other people I know have done. So in a way, it was self-help in the in not in the way that it's intended. I think for the people who buy it for a specific reason, but it was self-help for me, like to understand the population at large. You know, mm-hmm. does that count? Um, no, it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> no, because uh, we what about, all like, have women who to run learn. with the wolves, right? Yeah, we all have things to learn from each other. I think this is, these are things that, you know, they're factoids. Like, again, going back to the party, like, I don't think something that's as complex as what Gina writes, that's not something you're going to, like, drop as a fun fact. But if you can be like, hey, uh, you know, when this company, The Power of Habit is all about, um, by Charles Duhigg, which is extremely popular, and he has podcast, and he's he's around um you know he'll talk about like okay this company implemented this habit um or okay this is from that book see i'm gonna do it right now uh febreze febreze couldn't sell like people were not buying febreze and then the marketing company instead of trying to like convince people of its powers of making things uh cleaner or whatever um, they worked into the advertising the habit that when you leave a room or like after you make a bed, you like squirt for breeze and, and that's right. the that's the habit that is now locked into your life. So mm. when you have these funny little anecdotes or statistics or tips um, for true self-help, you know, that's what's appealing about it is you get these little potato chips of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to link my habits together i'm gonna do this so so no gina's work is too complex for what i'm but, suggesting okay but those people who like want to link their habits together they also want to tell you about it all the time like <laughs> hey here's this thing that i do that i learned from a book that you should read i got it for you i wrapped it i got it signed for you he was at a seminar i did okay well i i'm sorry there's a cult-like thing about it though that's the thing it's that like, is oh. true there, like, there's a strong cult undercurrent to a lot of these self-help guru people. Well, that's why you have to have a major sense of shame about it. <laughs> and leave it behind at the pool when you're done. <laughs> All right, so that's your first pick, is self-help books at the pool? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I, I I, mean, I have other pool reads. Um, right, but... Well, that's your first one. So we'll, we'll start with okay, that. Okay, how about you? So... I like to read something that is so fucking absurd and so illogical. Okay. And that has absolutely no bearing on the reality of my life at all. That I can read it and I don't have any anxiety. So I think we've talked about this before, like how Wendy and I were watching that movie Gravity and all the space junk was flying into the spaceships and uh, Sandra Bullock's character was like running out of oxygen and she was going to plummet to the earth and I was feeling very anxious and Wendy was super placid and I was like why aren't you freaking out right now and Wendy was like well I'm never going into space <laughs> this has absolutely no bearing on my life at all and I was like uh, well 
huh, okay. <laughs> like, she was so definitive. She knew so well, like, well, I'm never going to be on the space station, so I don't have to worry about this. This is not applicable to me. Um, so the other day, I reviewed a book in USA Today that I quite liked. Um, and it was this book called Falling by T.J. Newman. And um, it's the book's getting a ton of press all over the place because it's written by a woman. So T.J. Newman was a flight attendant. Uh, and she wrote this book, and this is the horrifying part. She wrote like a lot of the book while people were asleep on the plane flying across country. And she was just, she didn't have anything to do, so she was writing her book. Which to me is like, no, don't be fucking writing your ass book while we're flying across the country. Be on the fucking lookout for fucking terrorists or flocks of geese or like <laughs> i need you 100 percent focused <laughs> and not just not fucking scribbling shit about your book when we're on a bomb flying across the country weren't you just saying that writers take their inspiration from real life in real time so <laughs> recognizing this in myself when I started to read the book, I was like, oh, wow. So she is playing into this very fear that I have and which is helping to sell the book. Um, and it, it, it is, it's a really, it's the perfect beach book um, because the plot itself is just like, um, it, it's like elevator pitch gold, which is an airline pilot gets a message while he's already in the air that his family has been abducted. And if he doesn't crash the plane, his wife and children will be murdered. Oh my God. Dun, 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 dun. So it's a it's 150% absurd, right? Yep. <laughs> but it's just plausible enough <laughs> that if you turn off everything else in your head and you're just focused on that thing, it's like, oh my God, like this could happen. This shit could happen. And... It's the it's the perfect beach book or perfect pool book because like if you're like if shit's going on around you and you're a little drunk, like the I and I mentioned this in the review, like the dialogue's not great, but it's like the dialogue you expect in, in a book like this. But like the action that's happening is intense from page one to page three hundred. It takes exactly the amount of time that you would spend by the pool. It's like it's like a four and a half hour read and it's done. And I was like, I, I was, I, I told you actually, oh, I, I already reviewed the book. I don't think I'll talk about it again. But I was thinking about it. I was like, man, like that is the book to go take with you to any public pool or community <laughs> pool or hotel pool because it, it is just absurd enough and just well done enough. And it really is well done. She, she's masterful with her pacing to get you through the entire thing. And then when you're done, the person sitting next to you is like, what was the book about? And you'd be like, it's fucking nuts. This yeah. pilot, yeah. he's got a, he either crashes the plane or they kill his fucking family. And then the person next to you is like, how's he get out of it? Like, well, you just got to fucking read it. Yeah. I can't explain it. Because you can also can't explain it because you've forgotten the plot points already. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you say this because I have my list of books that I've read just in the last like two years. And the ones that I'm like, ooh, I should talk about this for this topic, I have had to look them up and reread what they are about. Because usually right. you remember the scenario, you know, the little setup that you're describing, right. and that's it. Yeah, um, and that's enough. Like, that's what it should that's be. It enough. should just be like, that scenario, that scenario got this person 
who wrote the book while I was asleep on her plane. Um, a million dollars <laughs> for the book, and then she sold the film rights also. Like, if you have that one great idea, like, you're, you're a pilot. You need to crash this plane or we'll kill your family. Oh, shit. Yeah, and one that, thing that that's I, gold. I think about a lot is... It must be so interesting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, to write a book that, to spend years working on a book that you know people are going to read in three hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, your experience of time and the story and everything is, you have to be so aware that what you want is for them to just chew through this thing in one Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. You know? It's it's really weird. Like, when... um... When I wrote the book with Brad Meltzer, The House of Secrets, he he was he's really big on on really fast pace. So in his books, which are, are made for what we're talking about, like he writes those big, bulky action thrillers, and that's what we wrote together. But they're big and bulky because the chapters are three pages long. Mm-hmm. So it's four hundred and fifty pages, but there's only sixty five thousand words, <laughs> and so you have the impression that you have digested a huge thing. But it's a function of how they're written with I really short chapters. I will never forget when I was 17 or 18 and the Da Vinci Code came out, mm-hmm. that epiphany. I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is a 400-page <laughs> book and every chapter is two to three pages and somehow they all end on a cliffhanger. Right. Um, but you know what? It's a vibe. It's, it's a, a vibe. It's a total vibe. It, <laughs> and it's, it's meant for this sort of thing. Like... To be absorbed in, like, so that you always feel satisfied. Like, oh, if I, if I just have to finish this chapter and then I can go get my kid out of the, out of the, the deep end, it's only like 20 more seconds. Yeah. It's always just like yeah. 20 more seconds exactly. of reading, but then I'll get the kid out of the deep end. Um, and he taught me that, and it, it was like, it was life changing. Like, I always sort of knew it, right? But to, to write like that is a completely different animal. And I'm not, I don't think I'm great at doing that. And so, um, I, I don't think I've applied that as much to my own work. Um, I, I think I apply it more to my screenwriting. Um, but yeah, like that, that sort of like that book took us, you know, a year and something to write, but it wasn't very long and people would read it in three and a half hours. And I was like, for the fucking stress and pain of writing that yeah. book, and people are like, you buy it and you call me four hours later and say you're done. Yeah. That's what I'm curious about. Does it feel... Yeah challenging in that way uh a little bit a little bit um but you know by the time a book comes out you're also so far away from it in time that you're just happy for it like you know you can read my new book pretty quickly and some of those stories are you know years and years old um but also i think you know with a short story collection it lends itself to rereading versus a novel Mm -hmm. you don't reread a book like falling like you don't Mm -hmm. read that get to the end and be like oh i'm gonna read that again it's like no you like just like you don't reread Jaws. It's like, oh yeah, it's a giant fuck off shark and then they kill it. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I've watched Jaws. Oh, I've watched times. Jaws. Yeah, we just watched it, but you don't reread it. Like you can watch it because it's fun to to experience it with someone else. But when you're the main character because you're absorbing the literature itself, you're not gonna slog through like. And Jaws, Jaws is you know another perfect example of a book like this. But Jaws aspired to be something more. There was this huge undercurrent in Jaws about the social classes at the beach. There's an organized crime element. There's an affair. Blah, there's blah, all, blah. Give me that all this bite. Other crap. It's like, go <laughs> get that fucking fish. 
get that fucking fish. And that's what they do in the movie. It's like, oh, there's a, a fish and it's eating everybody. We're going to get it. Great. <laughs> and then One of my favorite hour, movies. Yeah. An hour and 42 minutes later, it's over. <laughs> okay. I'm going to submit another okay. pool read. Um. I have two I'm deciding between. You just have one more. I'm the one who said, oh, yes. let's not talk about too many. How many do you have? I've got, I got one more. Okay. All right. I will submit. But it's really a genre I'm going to discuss. But go ahead. Oh, very good. Um, this is a book I read on the plane. So this is cheating. But uh, it is called The Perfect Nanny. I bought it in the airport. Um, the Perfect it's Nanny. It's French. And it's a French translation of this creepy book of a nanny who kills the two kids she's watching. Perfect. <laughs> <What the> fuck. <laughs> it's like one of those books where the, the title is like some familiar saying, like Dosi Do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the cover, I'm looking at it right now on Goodreads, is just a close up on like a Peter Pan collar. <laughs> Just an ominous fashion choice. Um, and again, like like Falling, like this book is actually really good for what it is, but it was mm-hmm. so, I think I read it in like two hours um, because there's no extra to the story. It's just this right. inside this nanny's mind and how lonely and messed up she is. And like she kills the kids on page two and the whole thing's a flashback, that kind of thing. Okay. Like, right. you know? Oh, man, just other countries' idea of horror. That's a good pool read, too, you know? Yeah, and it's a good pool or good, like, airplane. Because when I'm on an airplane, I'm going through, like, that full checklist of of, um, terror management. And so, (laughs) like, okay, let's try not to die, you know? Also, don't have a heart attack. And also, don't feel like you need to shit real bad. Um, like, those are like, wow. you got a lot going three, on up there. Yeah, those are the three things I'm checking <laughs> constantly. Like, are we going to die? No. Okay. Am I going to have our tech? No. Okay. Do I have to go to the bathroom? No. Okay. Continue. <laughs> but on a plane, I can devour a book because I am just so focused on not experiencing anything else around me as part of my terror management that I would, I could just go, woo, 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 woo. And, but I also absorb it really well, which is strange. Well, I feel like I get a lot more intense about choosing a book for a plane because I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you just don't have a book that you're locked into when you're yeah. on a flight, that's that's disaster level for me. Yeah. That's like, I picked the wrong thing. I messed this whole thing up. Now what am I going to do? That's why I always have on my phone downloaded like three surefire 185 page classic noir novels that's good <laughs> we're like I... no matter what like oh I'll, i can read this Donald Wesley book it's about a hitman who has to go get some jewels done i am certain i've said this before on the podcast but um my plane strategy <laughs> you're gonna hate this is just the biggest disasters i can find so i read the hot zone on a plane oh, i read right. the stand on a plane i read i read books about real plane crashes on planes yeah, that's ships disconcerting thinking. That's disconcerting. That's that's my strategy. So my my second favorite thing by the pool, um, and when we were on our um, honeymoon, this was a long, long time ago, I read like 30 of these, is The Legal Thriller. 
Okay. A, a genre I actually dislike. I yeah. fucking love for <laughs> the pool. So, like, the firm, the firm is the legal thriller, like, the, the point of most excellence. Or any Scott Turow book. I did an event with Scott Turow a couple weeks ago. And then I'd met him before years and years ago. We were both up for an award that we lost. And I don't think he remembered me. But I was I was like, hey, hey Scott! And he was like, hello. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I told him again, like, hey, man, just I just love your books. I've always loved your books. I'm just a big fan of your books. He was like, uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> just smiling and looking like a fucking idiot. And then we're on live and I'm just trying not to be like, oh my God, I'm on this is Scott Turow. Um, but anyway, the John Grisham legal thriller, like The Firm, where it's a guy and he gets his dream job and he's got his brothers in prison and then he finds out that the, the law firm he's working for is owned and operated by the mob mm-hmm. and they got to get the money and get to Grand Cayman. Oh, love it. I love that legal thriller. I, I don't want a legal thriller that has some large sort of civil rights component to it. <laughs> I don't want, like, oh, we're going to save the wrongly accused murderers. I want, like, the lawyers to be bad and the one lawyer we're following to be less bad. And I want them, like, maybe there's some sort of government conspiracy. Okay. But usually it's, like, tobacco or something like, right. <laughs> like that. Or, like, oil, something like that, where the, the law firm is bad. You want I, all bad guys. I want all bad guys, but I want there to be that smart lawyer because in my mind, I'm like, I could have been a lawyer. <laughs> I like to argue. I feel like I, I'm smart. People tell me I'm smart. I could have totally been a lawyer. Um, and I like the I like the dialogue when they're in court and people are trying to outmaneuver the other person. I love that shit when I'm sitting by a pool. And then I'm like, oh my God, I totally could have been like one of those people that helps select the jury. Like I could, I would have been that guy too. Sure. And I'm also kind of the judge. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you feel a real personal connection. <laughs> yes. And I like at no time when I'm sitting at home have I ever like I have four thousand books on my bookcases. At no time when I'm reading for pleasure at home am I like you know what I'm gonna find me a John Grisham novel. Never. I gotta be. I have to not be wearing underpants. Be by a pool and have flip-flops somewhere near me, and then it is on. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's true. Almost nothing beats a good courtroom scene. I think that's the American in us. We like seeing our government at work. (laughs) Or we like seeing how we can defraud our government. Sure. Yeah, because it's all about, yeah, it's not really about ethics. It's about outsmarting people, no matter the ethics. Right. It's the getting away with it. Oh, We like the getting away with it. Love that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners have read this. Did you read Where the Crawdads Sing? No, I didn't. That was a very zeitgeisty book. Um, yeah, it's still it like the number two bestseller in the world. In yeah. But isn't there some dark story about her and her husband like murdering South Africans or something crazy like that? The author? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll go look that up after this. Yeah, there's, there's something dark about Ooh. her and her husband. Like in the 80s. And then maybe her husband got murdered. I might be fucking this all up. There's something dark. Something not And then I wrote an this. essay about it in Slate where it's like, <laughs> I was the crawdad. <laughs> you might remember that essay I wrote. Yeah, it was weird. I didn't know you had that. 
prestige so this, thing going on. Is this the point at which Ryder would just say, okay, we're going to stop talking now because they land on like something funny? like, literary disguise. <laughs> Hey, folks, uh, so those are some beach reads. If you're listening and uh, you feel inclined to let us know what you like to read when you're sitting by the pool, put it up on Twitter. We'll retweet it. We'll we'll treat you like a nice person. Um, we'll make you famous. We'll answer your questions. We'll do whatever you and want because writer's not around. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to judge you. Well, I'll judge you. I'll, Even you know, if you read Atomic I'll Habits. Ju- I'll judge you. Literary Disco is brought to you in coordination with LitHub. Right? We are produced by Justin Alvarez. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Literary Disco. You can follow us on Facebook, at Literary Disco. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to read something else soon when Ryder gets back from uh, his vacation. Maybe Easter week. We'll check you next time. Yeah.